This is Top Floor episode 41. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 41. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Kevin Rohani got his first taste of sales commission selling mobile phones at Costco. Kevin spent a big portion of his career in hotel development for boutique and luxury brands with SBE, Accor, and Dream Hotel Group. Before leaving to focus on his startup, Camo. Camo Hospitality is not a travel agency for duck hunters, despite what you may think. Instead, the company offers a ghost kitchen concept on steroids, maximizing unused hotel kitchen space and offering room service to hotels that don't typically have on-site food and beverage. Today, Kevin and I are going to talk about how select service hotel brands can generate revenue by offering many, many dining options with no overhead costs. But first, before we jump in, we have to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Francis. This question is very straightforward. Why is hotel room service usually so expensive? Kevin, I know you've got thoughts on this. What do you think? Why is it so expensive? $24 piece of toast. What do you got? Susan, first, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. And I, I love that question because I uh, I was with my wife uh, a couple weeks ago and we got room service at a hotel and it was $87 for bagel and lox and a pancake. But it comes down to a few things. So for one, hotels on their own don't receive enough room service demand to operate it profitably. So if you have to have an employee there 24-7 answering the phone, if you have to have an employer or two there in the kitchen preparing a hundred or a 200 room hotel may only get three to five room service orders a day. So it doesn't actually make sense for them to do it, you know, in the, in the first place. And as a result, they have to increase costs. And when they increase costs, what do you do? You go to DoorDash or you leave the hotel and you go somewhere else. So a lot of this has to do with uh, general operating efficiencies and something that we are aiming to solve in our platform. It's interesting. I was thinking about this when I saw what the question was going to be for today. And I remember being at a hotel when it was the 90s and hearing people talk all of the time about you pay for the convenience, you pay for the convenience. You know, these Pringles cost $26 because you're paying for convenience. And that used to be the case. That used to be accurate because things like DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever didn't exist before. You don't have to pay for that convenience anymore. Right. That's a no, it's a good point. You know, one of the things that's happened is hotel brand standards have roughly stayed the same, but what's happened over the last 10 years is the growth of third-party marketplaces and last mile delivery and things like this, right? So the guests normally didn't have the option to go to DoorDash or to, you know, go around the street or to go to Instacart. And now the fact that they do 
means that the hotel guest has that expectation full stop from beginning to end, whether it's from DoorDash providing it or the hotel. Now, the hotels don't really have any uh, you know, cost-effective or scalable way to do this. It's ultimately, again, why we, we, we committed the better portion of the last few years of our lives to developing this so that we can alleviate this moving forward and that hotels have their have their say as they uh, kind of expand into the world of marketplace and logistics and, and, you know, and things of that nature. So your family was in the residential real estate business and you got your first taste of the sales high when you were slinging cell phones at Costco when you were in college. How did that background coalesce into a hospitality career? Like, How did you get your first hospitality job? Yeah, no, it's funny that you ask because I actually got my first sense of and taste of sales even prior to working at the, the Costco cell phone kiosk. My my mom owned a residential brokerage and was always, you know, out meeting clients, nurturing relationships, trying to help them find their dream homes. And seeing that firsthand every day then led me into uh, you know, the Costco store where Oddly enough, I was I was doing incredibly well. I think my first and second month, they they gave me an award. I'd kind of broken a company record and it had reached top sales across all Costco's in the country. Good grief. And it's actually the reason why I got into hospitality because it delayed my schooling. So I was in high school and I was making a good deal of money. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why would I go to college right now and, and take all this time? I'm making a lot of money. So I didn't go to school the first couple of years out of high school. And I was, I was just working and really enjoying that life. But ultimately, you know, that, that, that's what parlayed into how I started my career in hospitality. Somewhere along the way, I had been introduced to and met with the president of SBE, who has, you know, since been my mentor and a great, you know, kind of role model in my life. Did you sell him a cell phone? No, I didn't sell him a cell phone. <laughs> I was actually in his hotel. I was in the lobby of the SLS hotel in Beverly Hills, which was far ahead of its time. And, you know, and it was coming in, in, in right when the recession was happening, which is when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I had had this meeting with, you know, the president of the company. And, and, and he had told me that if I got my degree in hospitality, he would hire me the day I graduated. And like oh, wow. within a month, within a month of this conversation, my alma mater, Cal State Fullerton, received a large amount of funding from a donor that then helped create its a larger business center, which had a hospitality platform practice within it. So as a result of me not going straight to college because I was making so much in sales, I stayed. And then when I went back to school, my school had finally developed their hospitality platform, like the same time this conversation had happened. Oh, that's crazy. I stayed, I got a double concentration. I added hospitality to it and they kept their word. They hired me the day I graduated. And that's when it all started, you know, 14 bucks an hour as a temp, you know, filing paperwork in the basement. And uh, that was, that was kind of where it all began. When you were doing that filing, were you like, dude, I could be selling cell phones right now. This is nonsense. Or were you sort of sucked into the glamour because of the SLS? I'll tell you, like, I think it's where I found passion, right? I'd always been a high energy guy and I loved people and I just loved doing things and moving forward, right? But it wasn't until I saw how emotional the connection between a restaurant brand or a nightclub or a hotel and its ultimate guest or audience or user, that emotional connection to me, it was done. You know, you hear the saying a lot in hospitality, like you got the bug. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I got the whole thing, like the whole <laughs> queen bee, the lot, like everything came and, and, and it was, it was like you got hit by a train. It was such a, 
a, a wake up call to how hospitality and, you know, and, and emotion kind of combined. And, you know, the company was remarkable at that time. It was in, you know, our nightclubs were in the, the entourage show. Like our founder's home was the home that Vinny Chase lived in, you know, like <laughs> in season two, we were on TV shows on MTV. There was constantly celebrities coming into the, I mean, it was not a normal environment to say the least. And and I think that that kind of kickstart to me was like, okay, you are all in. Let's see what we can do with this. Oh, wow. So you didn't stay in the basement forever. You ultimately led the business development efforts for several brands. Can you talk about a couple of your favorite projects, like maybe favorite hotels or favorite deals that you ever did? Oh my God. Uh, you know, favorite deal I think was 2003 when I convinced somebody to switch from T-Mobile to Verizon and get five new phones. <laughs> but for me, I think there's been kind of three phases in my career so far that I would highlight like two or three projects. Number one was the Redberry in Hollywood, which has now been converted to a private members club and, and, and the SLS in Las Vegas. And those were the first hotel projects I worked on. So within like the day of me getting hired, our company had just purchased this hotel that had gone bankrupt with somebody else. And it was like 90% complete. So like my first days of experience was small company with a corporate office of four people in the hotel division turning this building into a hotel. And we did it in 90 days. And it became like one of the most amazing hotels in Hollywood. I loved it so much. It had this big sign on the top of the building that said, home is where the heart is. And that's what I always felt about hospitality. And then ultimately like the SLS Vegas, we we acquired a casino. We shut down the casino, 1600 rooms, right? This To go from a 57 room London flat style hotel in Hollywood on Hollywood and Vine to a casino on a strip is my first two projects was kind of crazy. So when Accor acquired SBE and basically acquired you, you took the position, but you were working, I think, on what would become camo on the side. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Like if a listener has a big job, but is very passionate about a side project, what advice would you have? Or did I just rat you out to the powers that be at Accor? No, no, not at all. I have, uh, <laughs> I have a great relationship with them. But I will tell you this. It's hard. It's hard. It's really hard. But it's also incredible at the same time. And a lot of it has to do with really finding your focus. Uh, you know, I, I, I stopped utilizing like social media like five years ago, like in its entirety, right? And I focus a lot of you know, just the way my mind works and trying to hear my own thoughts and and, and use this as a way to leverage myself. And, and so I've really spent a good deal of time trying to become really focused. And I think if you have focus and you have drive, you absolutely have to do it. There was one reoccurring theme that I just could not live with, which was, I don't want to rent my time. You know, I just don't want to rent my time anymore. I, 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 have great ideas. I have passion to create. And, and ultimately, it comes down to two, three really important key factors. What type of relationship can you develop between yourself and risk? What kind of relationship can you develop between yourself and fear? And what kind of develop relationship can you develop between yourself and competition? And if you can kind of understand these pieces, I would say 100%, go all in and just do it because it's only going to get harder. 
It's so funny because when I first told my parents, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe it. You you lost, you left this great job so that you could do this thing and it's going to be tough and you're going to make no money and da, 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 da. And, and, and that was like two years ago. And today they're like, oh my God, what you <laughs> built is amazing. I'm so proud of you. And I cannot wait for this to, 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 to be in more hotels and to, to feed more guests and to help more hotels, um, uh, you know, cash flow and things like that. So ultimately it's just sticking true and, and, and one foot in front of the other, but I would strongly recommend it. And I'll tell you this, probably the most important part of it, you have to have like a, a certain level of faith. And I don't mean that in like a, a religious sense. I mean, I mean that in a sense of like, you'll never know what your outcome is when you're developing your idea or when you're working on it, you'll never know where it's going to land. At some point you're going to have to trust that it's going to meet you where you're trying to take it. You know, there's a saying, I hope I don't botch it, but uh, being an entrepreneur is like jumping out of an airplane and then having to rebuild the airplane on your way down. Right. And, and, and it's, it's really true. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to tell us about camo, about what you do and why you do it. But first I really just need to know where the name comes from. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, my dad's side of the family uh, were immigrants and they, they have a military background, right? So I always grew up loving fighter pilots and jets and stuff like that. And, you know, the idea of camouflage had always kind of been really true to, to like the DNA of our family. But ultimately, it came down to really trying to create something that could blend into the existing operations of a hotel without causing any disruption. Right. And so when thinking about that, I was like, it has to be camo. Absolutely. We need to camouflage what we're doing inside the hotel operations so that while this system is running and while these great brands are being serviced, the hotel's front desk doesn't have any more phone calls to answer. The hotel's engineer team doesn't have any more work to do. Right. The hotel's revenue manager doesn't. So it's, it's creating something that brings value off existing infrastructure without impacting the hotel. Okay. So take a step back and tell us what is it that you do besides camouflaging yourself within the hotel? What are you selling? Oh yeah. So, you know, I think you kind of, you hinted on it right when we started, but essentially we've created an end to end solution for underutilized hotel kitchens. So we have developed a platform that combines a portfolio of virtual restaurant brands, hotel-centric technologies, and instant off-premise demand so that we could package this whole setup and provide it to hotels, whether there's a vacant kitchen or an operating kitchen that's at break-even or a loss that could generate more revenue. So essentially, we built an incredible portfolio of restaurant brands that cross-utilize ingredients and ultimately serve different food genres. What we really wanted was to bring something more enhanced than what DoorDash offers, right? And that is giving guests not only the ability to have the power back in their hand and select from an array of different restaurant brands, but to be able to mix between them as well. We're able to basically ensure that any hotel is going to receive instant demand at no upfront cost, and with limited efforts required by the property, because we are the off-premise solution for these hotels, the food services solution for these hotels, and the food service technology solution for these hotels. So ultimately, in short, if I was going to dumb that down, I'd say we turn hotel kitchens into mini DoorDashes, and we connect those kitchens with other hotels so that multiple hotels can utilize a marketplace to give their guests room service. 
Okay. I have lots of questions. I know you have lots of answers. So as I understand it, in your model, you would use, say, a hotel kitchen that the restaurant's closed or it used to service banquets and they don't do that much business anymore, whatever it is, an underutilized kitchen to prepare food, not just for that hotel, but for as many hotels within a specific radius as possible. So the first question I have about that is, is it imperative to the model that the kitchen be inside of a hotel or does it like, could you just build a freestanding commissary kitchen to do the same thing? Or tell me a little bit about why the unused kitchen is such an important piece here. I honestly, I've thought about it a billion times and life would be so much easier if I was taking freestanding kitchens and, and doing this as an offsite commissary. But the ultimate goal of what we wanted to accomplish was by not only, you know, creating a solution for this problem, we also wanted to be, you know, in a position where we had trust and transparency with the guests, right? So what's been happening in the world of, of ghost kitchens is you're finding out a lot of these kitchens are in warehouses, they're in trailers, they don't have health permits, the cooks don't wash their hands. Now, the reason we also really love hotels is it forces two things. One, it forces a much higher quality of kitchen in sanitary standards, much higher, right? Which means that we can execute at a higher level. And, and, and that's important to us because it's super easy to just come up with virtual brands and, and to just, you know, put them on DoorDash. And it's, it's actually so easy that speed is becoming more desirable than quality. And we focused on, you know, kind of the efficiencies, uh, you know, of operating very well. So the hotel causes us to have to operate better. Got it. So it sort of raises the standard. It raises the bar. But the second component too is it also forces us to always know and live within whatever brand standards exist, right? And each hotel has a different brand standard. So the Hilton Garden Inn's food and beverage brand standards are completely different than the Holiday Inn and Suites brand standards, right? And by us being in different hotel kitchens, we're able to form more nurtured relationships with our partners, become more ingrained in what they're doing and what their mission is between their brands and their segments. Gotcha. So you use hotel, unused hotel restaurant kitchens, but you don't just offer the food that's prepared there to the hotel where you're standing. It's also offered to maybe select brands in a five mile radius or whatever. Correct me on that if I got it wrong. Um, that don't have any kitchens that don't have food and beverage. So in the past, they you know, guests could like pull up their Uber Eats app or get DoorDash or whatever. And now they've got an in-house option that's prepared at this existing kitchen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. It's actually a big reason why I kind of started this, this platform in the first place. I like within a week saw two different articles and two different data points. And I told myself, how is this possible? So on one hand, you're seeing that less than 25% of hotels now offer room service, which is the lowest point in my life. Okay. And then on the other hand, you're seeing that in 2014 to 2018, DoorDash's room service orders went up by 900%. So there is something going on here that, that, that needed a the little The numbers are talking to you. The numbers were talking to me a little bit. And, and it got me to realize that, that, that hotels needed to be empowered with this in-house. And that's what we enable hotels to do, whether or not they have a kitchen. So we our, our technology allows us to create virtual storefronts that are customized for each different hotel. 
So for instance, I have a hotel kitchen operating right now next door to Disneyland. It's an independent hotel for that hotel's audience. The arrival experience through the ordering system is branded for that hotel. Yet we're doing room service for 12 other hotels directly around us, some through driver delivery, some through third-party driver delivery, some through our own personal walking because we're in a hotel-dense market and we can <laughs> hotels in, a, in an immediate radius. So we've been testing everything out right, and seeing what really works and putting together best practices. And ultimately, the reason why this is impactful is because it's first party. Although we're a third party operator, we're a first party system for hotels. Whereas in, in, a, in a DoorDash or an Uber Eats environment, yes, you can place the order, but you can only place the order from one concept. And there's no consistency as to how that order gets to you. Maybe the, 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 the dasher has to drive to two different hotels to drop it off. Maybe he leaves it at the front desk. Maybe he runs it up to your room. Maybe he gets to the elevator, realizes he needs a key, sees a line at the front desk and says, screw it, I don't want to wait, and just leaves the bag somewhere and leaves, right? All of these scenarios exist because you do not have anything personalized for your hotel. So we basically will, out of our hub kitchens, provide partner hotels their own virtual storefronts branded for them that geotag every single one of their guest rooms and allow their rooms to simply scan a code in the room, enter their room number, and see our marketplace of brands. Um, when they place their order, it gets fulfilled. Our room service delivery times are insane right now. We're doing 10 to 12 minute room service deliveries to our hub and 20 to 23 minute room service delivery to any partner hotels, which is still twice as fast as any hotel doing their own. Um, we're also able that's to do That's this. shocking, actually. Yeah. It's a fit. When you start a business thinking about efficiency instead of branding, you, you get to you know a better product, I think. Um, You're going to be mad then because my next question is about branding. Well, we, we do that part really well. And I had faith in that part. So we just stack that on top of the efficient processes and foundation. But uh, yeah, this is this is the big kind of what we try to do. And, and, and what's really unique about this is we now capture the revenues that were normally leaving the hotel, whether they were going to DoorDash or the hotel guest was leaving. We're now capturing that revenue and we provide revenue shares to redistribute back cash flow to the hotels. So every hotel that partners has cash flow coming monthly or quarterly, right? They all oh, wait, so they get a uh, like a percentage Absolutely. of the sales? I've never liked giving away money more than I like <laughs> from recapturing room service revenues that were normally just didn't exist. And then providing back the portion of the profits to these properties so that not only can they offer the amenity and receive the benefits of saying they now offer room service and they have marketplace dining, but they also receive cash as a profit line item that normally was zero. Oh, so that's interesting because I was going to ask you, how is this different from the delivery services? But that's a big difference already. I'll, I'll put it in perspective, Susan. We have one of our hotels right now. It's 290 rooms, right? Um, one of our virtual room service partners. We're on pace to do $540,000 in room service revenue from that hotel alone. And we're not even in there. And um, that $500 x plus $1,000 used to be a zero. It would be oh, split wow. between DoorDash, Uber Eats, Postmates, and then the local restaurants. We are now enabling the hotels to capture the revenue, keep it in-house. Now, this is a fun conversation, but one day you want to get into cap rates and how the bottom line impacts the value of real estate. I mean, instant bottom line infusion is huge. And, and, and I actually see... From the early findings of our business, this is something that works really well for both our hubs and our partner hotels. It sounds too good to be true. So I have to go back to this annoying brand question that I have for you. And you're going to laugh, but why do you have so many different restaurant brands? Like, Why not just have 
a thousand page cheesecake factory esque menu with every possible thing on it. What's the value to customers, to hoteliers of having all of these different restaurant brands? We developed our brands because they needed to align with brand standards and they needed to align with our guests. There's two real reasons that we did this. One is the efficiency of capturing the guests, right? When they're able to go to a menu and it has different brands and they're bifurcated or segmented by food genre, people really uh, uh, you know, attach to that. Well, I want burgers. Great. I'm going to burgers rather than sifting gotcha. through, right? I want fried chicken or I want pasta. Or I want Hawaiian sliders or a salad, right? And the other component is they actually feel more empowered by the ability to mix and match between different concepts. See, one restaurant that has a lot of menu items is generally an inefficient kitchen, right? The average hotel restaurant has 22 to 27 menu items, five of which generate 90% of the sales. So what does that mean for your waste and for your inventory and for your production and for your prep? It doesn't make sense. So what we did was we developed restaurant brands foundationally off of the top five or seven highest ordered menu items in each food genre. There is no point trying to reinvent the wheel and come up with these hyper complex ingredients and, and, and menus, right? People want simple food. They want it delicious. They want it to stay warm. They want it to be good 30 minutes after they've ordered it. And they want to have flexibility in how they do it, right? So that was one reason we did this this way. The other reason was our system. Also, when we're in kitchens that have more output capacity than the room service demand that we provide, we push one button and every single one of our brands, while it's in a marketplace in our platform, they each go individually into every different delivery service provider. So if I have eight brands running in one kitchen and it's running in my marketplace, which is first party and hotel centric, yet the kitchen could produce an extra 500,000 or an extra million dollars. I push the button to third party delivery and every brand is on Uber, DoorDash, Postmates, Grubhub. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. It requires that. no menu management. It flows through because of the way our menus are built. We push one button and the exact menu in our system flows in as an individual brand. Across oh, that's all. amazing. And it okay, all feeds so... into the same kitchen display screen. So aggregating demand is a big part about what we try to do. But you have to do third party off of a profitable business model. This is key. Most people right now are 100% leveraged on third-party delivery. They're in the ghost kitchen or the virtual brand space. They're going to die. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Hey, this sounds like a good time to take a break. We'll get right back to my conversation with Kevin Rahani. After this, Kevin talks about the impact of architecture and equipment on food menus, his absolutely brilliant idea for fixing the mini bar, and how he wrote SOPs for a hotel despite never working in one. Be right back. Top Floor is supported by Cayuga Hospitality Consultants. For more than 35 years, Cayuga's international network of hospitality consultants has helped guide industry stakeholders from owners and operators to lenders and investors. Whether you need help with a short-term project or longer-term guidance, consultants bring executive-level lodging, food and beverage, asset management, and development expertise. Cayuga brings together every discipline of hospitality to deliver operational excellence and financial success. Learn more at cayugahospitality.com or call 866 386 
4020. And Cayuga is spelled C-A-Y-U-G-A. As you know, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some practical, tangible, specific tips to try in their businesses or in their lives. What do you do differently that makes your company hotel-centric? And what I mean by that is... There, I think, are other food tech or other um, multiple concept commissary kitchens and stuff like that that are attempting to ride this similar wave. So why is yours more more hotel-centric? By being hotel-centric, I mean our brands and our menus are built after hotel equipment. So I had architects pull hundreds of CAD drawings of different hotel kitchens, both branded, unbranded, independent, uh, lifestyle, three-star, five-star, in-room dining kitchens, banquet kitchens, restaurant kitchens. I've been looking at hundreds of kitchens over the last couple of years and basically figuring out what is the most streamlined way for me to give as many hotels the access to run profitable food service instantly. And that is by me. Oh, that is so interesting. Building our brands around the equipment and around the brand standards. Does that equipment piece play into the variety of brands too? So like if a certain type of hotel doesn't have X piece of equipment, they don't get a restaurant brand Y because it just won't work in their space. Okay. That's so interesting. You mentioned something about food waste before, and I think you have a pretty interesting take on sustainability in your company. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's funny because I, I, I come from the space, right? So I've seen different hotel companies and how they try to speak to sustainability, different restaurant companies and how they try to speak to sustainability. I think sustainability is more of a DNA than like a thing you do or a thing you say, right? And ultimately, what you see across the board is people that that will, you know, have, you know, eco-friendly packaging, for instance, right? Which is fantastic, right? Everybody needs eco-friendly packaging. Right. Except for like a compostable silverware or straw, I don't have a compost bin. That that yeah, fair point. Where we see sustainability as having the biggest impact is in waste. I believe restaurants are the single largest cause of, of, of food waste in, in the world. And, and the amount of food waste that's caused is terrible. I mean, we're talking about sustainability, right? Like there's, there's ways to do this better. So we built our menu and we cross-utilized our menu in a way, in an effort to eliminate waste. And you do this both for menu building and operational excellence, right? From the way that we track inventory to production and waste events, to the way that we build our menus to be cross-utilized. I mean, we, I, I, I had a data scientist come in and build a data script that allows us to basically input our different menus and our different brands together to see the layer of cross-utilization and where the limits of waste will be most efficient, right? And so we look at this from like a very granular level because ultimately, even if you have a lot of waste, I mean, it means you're spending way too much money on your cost of goods. That leads me to my next question, which is... How, since you're not in every single hotel that you serve, how do you know what to order? How do you anticipate the number of tomatoes to bring in? Is it based on your data and your data scientist's work? Is it based on 
occupancy projections from the hotels, something else, nothing. It's just a, you throw a dart at a map and hope for the best. <laughs> How do you do it? No, this is actually, it's funny because this is something that, that comes from, you know, a lot of, you know, my experience in growing hotel brands on the development side, right? Because we have to basically, you know, run feasibility on opportunities, prepare pro formas, share them with our owners, walk them through the financials and how we believe we'll perform. And the one way a manager gets kind of, you know, booted based on contractual issues is by failure of their performance test. So when you sign a management agreement with an owner, you sign a performance test that says, if I'm off by X percent for more than one year, you can terminate me at, at no cost, right? And so my entire career has been about feasibility and articulating data to come up with intelligible, um, you know, kind of guidelines for how a property will perform. So it is entirely data-driven for us. We receive occupancy reports from all of our properties. So we'll know if there's a conference in town, if there's a big event in town, or if it's just a localized, you know, kind of leisure trip. And that usually is what helps us run our assumptions. But there it's it's it, it actually ran true in this first scenario, even including the ramp up of our first location. We were like spot on on how we would perform day one, week one, month one, right? Which to me was crazy, but uh, because our system is first partied and built around the hotel room service system, it's a little bit easier for us to make strong judgments. Listen, maybe you need to start doing... Uh, rooms occupancy forecast because it sounds like you have a better record <laughs> on accuracy than a lot of people. This is maybe a little bit of a nosy question, a little bit behind the curtain. So no harm done if you decide to pass. But I'm wondering long-term for your business, is there continued value in operating this concept yourself or is this proof of concept right now and the goal is to license it to hotel portfolios with underutilized kitchens that they can roll this out themselves? No, it's a, it's a great question. And, and you know, it's part of our, our launch strategy. I didn't build this hoping there would be an audience. I built it knowing there was and I had to kind of build it for them. Ultimately for us, I think that the scalability of our platform lies with the licensing of our, our platform, which we call Hosts. So we, we, we partner with hosts of our platform. And, and the reason it is going to be the, the priority, at least for scale, is because the host platform is meant to be an add-on to existing operations. So you don't need to buy equipment. You don't need to go through permitting. You don't need to hire staff. You don't need to train them. That said, we are all in on operating our own locations in strategic markets, more so for us to constantly find innovative solutions in hotel food service operations and for us to run R&D on new brands. We're, we're, we're launching three new concepts next week that are like remarkably delicious. And, and, and every single time I try one of these new concepts, I get inspired to, to really think about ways to create value for a different hotel or a different hotel segment, whether we want to break out of limited and select service and go into lifestyle and luxury sooner or, you know, or things of that nature. So for us, I, I believe long-term, we probably have 15 to 20 leased and operated locations around the country and sky's the limit on licensing. I, I, I'd like to be servicing every hotel guest in the world. I mean, <laughs> just a small little goal. Just a small. <laughs> um, so now is the time in the show when we look ahead, predict the future, gaze into our crystal balls, maybe do a couple magic tricks along the way. What is a prediction that you have about the hotel business? 
I actually believe that the industry will continue to consolidate. If you thought all the big brands had already bought each other, it's going to continue. And there will be maybe a couple big players, formidable players. And I think as a result of once that happens, technology will start to flourish, right? Because there is scalability. When you have five owners or five companies that represent you know, 50% of the hotels in the US, then them making a decision means that it is nationwide. But when you have 10,000 owners that own these hotels, it's a lot harder to create any, so, any form of consistent change. So I think consolidation is tough, but at the same time, it will force innovations in technology that have been lacking. So I think it's going to finally bring it all together where you've gotten that perfect mix of you, you know, innovation and technology with service, right? Without alienating one for the other. So, so that's my, I think we'll find the balance of where like automation and service meet. All right. I'm going to play this back for you in a year and we're going to see how well you did. Now it's time for those magic tricks that I mentioned. And you know, this is going to be a little bit of a live brainstorm here, but I think you and I should try to figure out the future of the mini bar. Like room service, hotels cannot make money for mini bars for whatever reason. And they're too expensive for consumers. Like the $14 mini can of Pringles is a mind blower to everyone who encounters them. And yet everyone loves the idea of a mini bar. Like there's nothing more glamorous feeling than when you decide to throw caution to the wind and say like, forget it. We're just going to get anything we want out of this mini bar, eat that Toblerone bar, you know, down six mini bottles of vodka and call it a night. So how do we fix the mini bar in hotels? So... I think we're actually already on to something that we haven't really expressed yet and would love to rope you in and, and get some feedback and perspective. Let's do this <laughs> thing together. We actually like mini bar for us is phase two, right? Because we're already going to have the aggregation of rooms. We'll have thousands of rooms, tens of thousands of rooms under management by the end of this year, right? And as a result, we will already have direct access digitally to guests in all of these rooms. And if the hotel does not have their own mini bar service, we basically want to be able to offer a virtual component of it. Now, we want to do something a little bit different. We don't want the mini bar to be a place where you get gouged, right? That's one thing we're trying to reverse course on. We charge zero fees, no delivery fees, no service charge. Find me a room service check that that's ever happened to in history, right? And, and <laughs> you're seeing more and more fees being added, like fuel right. surcharge and like... You know, an empathy things fee. cost a lot, surcharge. Yeah, Life like, is tough, surcharge. Charge, right. Yeah, yeah. And there, you know, it's like 19 things at the bottom of the receipt. But essentially, because we're able to aggregate the demand from multiple properties, we're able to centralize resources and thus operate it more efficiently. So what we really want to do is uh, is 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 provide a, a virtual component of the mini bar that comes at cost to guests. That's what we want to do. We do not want to charge $5 for the Snickers bar. But what we want to do is have that secret sundries menu unlock with an order. So our technology, you can literally scan a code to order room service. And if you have items in your cart, a sundries menu will arrive. Because we don't want to just run over a Snickers. It's... It, it, I got to run a business and it's got to be efficient <laughs> and I can't be running Snickers across hotel rooms. Like right, not, you know, right. This doesn't work. But, but if you're getting If you're ordering dinner, a meal, you can get your Q-tips or your, you know, uh, you know, I, something for anything, right? Like wh whatever the market utilizes the most and have that included in the transition of the food because 
the bag is already there. The logistics are already You're there. Going. The delivery is already there. And the guest already has the need. And we don't want to use it as a way to gouge, right? We want guests to really trust us and say, if there's anybody that's like looking out for our best interest while we're traveling and rates are through the roof and flights are through the roof and costs are going up, it's going to be these guys. And I think ultimately becoming obsessed with how our guests feel is going to help drive us in the right direction. But that's what we're kind of working on. It's that fits so good, about. Kevin. I had all these thoughts of like, okay, we do a pre-stay message and then maybe they can ask for a stocked refrigerator. Blah, blah. No, this is better. <laughs> this is what needs to happen. I have nothing to add because you have solved this problem. I salute <laughs> you and congratulations. Okay, folks, before we tell Kevin goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Kevin, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? A story I would only tell you that, that, that I don't like tell people. I have one and it's like my first year in the hotel business. So... Tell me everything. <laughs> we can connect without moving backwards. I have a hilarious story for you. Before I knew anything about hotels, like my first two months working at my first company in the space, we were a very small hotel company and uh, like, like three, four people. And we were building and growing these remarkable brands. And so we had a hotel called the SLS in Beverly Hills, which was a remarkable hotel. But it was branded by our company, but it was managed by Marriott at the time because they, they acquired it with Marriott already as the operator. So when we were growing the SLS brand, I at like 25 years old and with limited understanding of the hotel business, drafted the standard operating procedures manual for the SLS hotel brand. And uh, ultimately with that, developed and grew the property in Vegas, the property in Miami, ultimately through an acquisition two years ago to a core. So how's that, you know? Um, and you had never worked a day in a hotel in your life. No, like my first task at that job was to review the collective bargaining agreement between them and a union on a hotel they owned. And I'm like, what's a union? Uh, but now <laughs> I know and I love these guys, right? But like at the time, straight out of college, I'm like, like CBA, what am I reading right now? And, and so I, that was my first year in hospitality was like all these things that most people probably don't even know. Like it's, it's a, it's a lot, right? Um, so what did you do? How did you even start? Like you got out your little sheet of paper and you wrote, dear employee, You know what's so right. funny? It's actually <laughs> now that I think about it, this is the first time I've been brought back to that memory in a while. Having to go through that, that exercise is probably why I was so gravitated towards feasibility because I became very resourceful and I became very good at finding information that would help make smart decisions, right? And so that's all I had to do there. I had to be incredibly resourceful. I would literally set up meetings. I would call hotels every day and tell them I was a student at NYU writing my final paper on their hotel and I had 10 questions about their hotel. And I'd literally just compile thousands of lines of information from hotels everywhere. And then separately, I would set up meetings with different roles, the director of sales and marketing, the director of engineering, the GMs of these hotels. And I would go in there and say that I'm like writing a mock SOP as part of my school project. You know, I was... I was young at the time. It was my first job. So I kind of looked like I could still maybe be in college or be in my master's, which, which was fantastic. But uh, yeah, it's like, 
It was crazy. It was, and then so, and obviously we didn't print my draft and go live with it. It took <laughs> visions and support from ops managers and VPs and our president and ultimately got to a point where it went live, but it went live. And that brand has actually done extremely well. Kevin Rahani, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got a lot out of our conversation, some great ideas, and I really appreciate you riding with us to the top four. No, it was so great to be here with you. I'm looking forward to catching up soon. Thank you, Susan. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes for today's episode at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 41. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 